Welcome to the Upbeat Podcast, powered by CoChart, a show that's dedicated to providing resources for families impacted by childhood chronic illness. For articles, videos, and show notes, visit our platform at theupbeat.cochart.org. So welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Upbeat Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Harrell-Edge, uh, Executive Director of CoChart. The Upbeat is powered by CoChart. We're a nonprofit organization that does free arts and athletics for any child impacted by any chronic illness in L.A., the Bay Area, and now San Diego as well. Uh, this podcast is intended to have parents and experts give tips on social and emotional well-being uh, for parents who are parenting a child impacted by chronic illness. And today we have an absolute amazing superwoman of a guest. Uh, we are joined by Felicia Ford, the mom of a 17-year-old girl named Faith who has cerebral palsy uh, and developmental disorders, uh, part of the autism spectrum. Um, and while raising and caring for her daughter, Felicia educated herself about how to find and use a variety of resources uh, to meet her daughter's needs. Along the way, she acquired certificates uh, for work as a nurse assistant, a home health aide, a mental health worker. She served on the Los Angeles County Children's Planning Council and the boards of several other organizations. Um, and today, Felicia's passion is to support vulnerable families and help them get life back on track. She is starting her own special needs nonprofit called A Leap of Faith. And, and uh, among all of those other things, she is a foster parent caring for children with special needs. So you can see why I would say that this is an absolute superwoman. We're so thrilled for you to join us. Uh, thank you for being here today, Felicia. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So I want to start right at the very beginning. We talked to so many parents where there's one day in which their life changes in this entirely unexpected way. Um, and that happened uh, for you, I, I believe, the day that your daughter Faith was born. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your story and what that experience was like? Absolutely. Um so my daughter was born 17 years ago. It was just completely shocking. Um, I started losing blood, and I didn't know what it was, but it was not the small portion of blood that you get uh, right when labor starts. It wasn't part of a mucus plug. It wasn't part of anything, and I knew it was unusual. And I was trying to at least take my boys to school for the last time before I had my daughter. Oh, wow. And... Um, had a had a scheduled C had not had a scheduled C section, but I'd had a prior one four years earlier with Faith's older brother Dylan, and all I know is that I got to the hospital. They were checking for a heartbeat, could not find it. When they found it, it was very low. Um, next thing I know, and they were, it seemed like they were taking their time. It seemed rather urgent, and they were moving slowly. And I think they just thought she was dead. And so I kind of started panicking a little bit. The next thing I knew, they took me into a, a surgical room and gave me what is called a crash C-section, meaning no warning, no nothing. They asked me what I'd eaten, and it was just one shock after the other. I was getting IVs and things put in. There were at least a, seven or eight people working on me at one time and asking questions. Wow. I was by myself. Um, my family was there. It was just shocking. Uh, I was so fast forward. I wake up shaking because they've given me morphine, and I guess it's one of the reactions you get from morphine. And I just started asking questions about my daughter, and they're putting hot blankets on me, and they said she was fine. I presumed she was fine, and that was until 
I fell asleep because I was on Demerol. I've never even had a beer before. So when you say Demerol, that's like really, really strong stuff for me. I was very sedated for the pain, I guess, and um, just for pain management. So I woke up and I asked how she was, and they said, oh, she's upstairs. But I couldn't move. I, I just couldn't move. The pain was so great. So I didn't have a, a block that numbs you from the waist down or any of that, and I simply could not move. Wow. Um, they said she was upstairs, but that she'd had seizures, and it was a little girl, which I knew Faith was going to be a girl. And it it was just one thing after another. It was day to day. They didn't know if she was would survive. Um, she had an NG tube. She didn't have a, a G tube or anything. But day by day, it was just becoming more tentative. And my my mom said, "I think it's time for us to call on the priest." My uh, I grew up Catholic. My mother is still Catholic. And so I just said, "Okay, I'll do it." And whatever they said, when doctors would make their rounds, I would just listen to every single thing they would say, and I would ask questions. I didn't care if someone was transcribing or not. I just started asking questions. So I learned about bilirubin and brain bleeds and all kinds of stuff, MRIs and all of that. And here's my baby taped up. Her nose is, this tube is taped to her mouth. She's got Mm. IV ports everywhere. And it was just the scariest thing. But I remember asking questions. Now I had not breastfed her, but I was pumping milk. And um, they started telling me things like, you know, after a few days, she started having better news. She survived the night and then it was the day and then it was a few days. I learned that she didn't have any brain bleeds and that that was a good sign because once you have brain bleeds, you know, she had seizures, but it was her body's uh, way of letting us know her system was shutting down. So it wasn't like she was born with a seizure disorder, right? But it was as a result of her traumatic birth. Mm -hmm. Right. She had blood transfusions, lost blood. It, It was just a nightmare. So I hadn't even held her. I can't remember at which point I held her, but someone said, have you held your daughter? I was like, no, I was so afraid. You know, she was bed one, bay one, which is the most severe child at that point. And she moved a couple of times. She moved to maybe bay two, bed seven. And then the last was bay four at maybe bed 16 or something. I don't know. But I just learned a lot along the way. And it was so traumatizing that I was not just in shock. I just did everything instinctively that I knew how to do as a mom. The hardest part I remember was staying in the hospital and not having my baby next to me and not being able to nurse. Mm -hmm. I couldn't really sleep, even though they were giving me this medication for pain. I just couldn't sleep because my instinct and my body's instinct was to nurse my baby. And she obviously has such a poignant name for having gone through that experience. One of the first things I was curious about was, had you already decided that you were going to name her Faith or did that happen during this kind of trying experience? You know, as a lot of parents, I thought, well, I wanted to begin with an F. I had a little vanity in this. It was my first daughter. My older kids were Uh nine and four. And I just figured I wanted to be an F. And that's all I knew. I didn't know if this would be Fatima, if it was going to be Felice. I didn't know. But then after this, her middle name is Epiphany. So it really was a spiritual awakening for me. And that's what an Epiphany is. It was Faith Epiphany. I gave her a second middle name, Sage. And my mom said, you know... I don't know. Like in our culture, it's just a, you know, a traditional name and a a Catholic or a saint's middle name and whatever your last name is. And I just said, no, it has to have meaning. This meant something for me. And so I've never been overly religious or overly spiritual, but this was a spiritual awakening for me. And so one of my great aunts said, you know, after all of this, honey, I think you should name her Faith. I said, Faith, it will be. That's beautiful. Yeah. It was just very meaningful for me. Absolutely. So I imagine there are parents listening who have gone through 
similarly traumatic things and, and really recently. And to hear your story of having gone through that and now have accomplished all of the things that you have has got to be such a, a beacon of inspiration uh, for so many parents. Um, how about uh, Faith? How is she doing today? What kind of challenges is she going through and what is her sense of self-identity uh, these days? At the moment, she wants to play music, and I want my little four-year-old to go help her, but she's busy coloring on the sidewalk. So, <laughs> so right, right now, Faith is, she's going to be a junior in high school. I kept her back one year, and she was on medication for one full year because she had migraines, severe migraines. Like, she has a high threshold for pain. This is a child who almost didn't survive. And what I neglected to say in the earlier part of our conversation was she didn't breathe for 11 minutes when she was born. So... You know, four minutes is brain dead, and she's anything but. She, prior to this one year ago, she's just coming off of a medication, a seizure medication, but it works for migraines. And it's very strong, and it's a sedative. So for one year, you know, she hasn't had any behaviors to speak of. She's been very quiet and very compliant. But it was also at the risk of her communicative, her language. Her strong suit has always been her social skills, her pleasantness, her desire to want to, she loves hip-hop music. My oldest son is a hip-hop artist. She just, you know, she's so lively. But she had some behaviors and, you know, aggression and grabbing and screaming and things when she was just out of control and couldn't process things, a lot like a lot of our children on the spectrum. But now she's just coming off this medication this week. So she said things that she said before, and I feel really bad as a mom. We always have guilt. I think any medication you use has the potential to leave a thumbprint on your psyche. And so her coming off this medication, she said something that she'd said frequently. Mom, I want to have new friends. I want to go to a new school. I want new friends. And this is something that she would say like clockwork every day, every other hour when she was much younger and in junior high. But I was so happy just to hear her say something, even if it's repetitive, it was familiar and it had meaning to her. So she said that when she was the first day she was off of the medication for one full month, four weeks solid. And so it kind of just made me feel like, okay, I have my daughter back and I'll take that in any form, the good, the bad, and the, and, and the ugly, you know, the behaviors, all of that. Today, she's kind of like wanting to go hang out with her friends. She wants to go to the marina to watch the boats pass by. The kids count the boats and say which one they're going to buy when they get bigger. Music, she wants to get iced tea. She wants to eat a salad, you know, and she's kind of getting back to herself. And I'm just happy about that because, you know, we just, we have guilt unduly sometimes. We just have guilt thinking that in some way we contributed to or exacerbated our children's issues and problems. But when I when I look back, that that was something of yesteryear. I probably did that the first two or three years of her life. Like I should have called someone to take me to the hospital sooner before I started bleeding. When I, at the first inkling of a contraction, and it just didn't happen that way. And we're not really in control spiritually or in all actuality. We are not in control of a lot of this stuff. It just happens. And if you're busy being guilty, you don't have a chance to really move life forward or fight the IEPs out or fight um, with regional center where I was a former board member. I have no problem letting someone know what my daughter's needs are and mm -hmm. fighting until the end, until she gets what she needs. What are some of the ways that you got through that, that you might give advice to other parents on how to overcome those types of feelings to be able to put yourself in that mindset of, of being there for the fight with those IEPs, et cetera? Well, you know, I was a single mom before my daughter was born. And I was a single mom even after she was born. So I had kind of the, the nerve, the, the, the wherewithal to say, no, not with my child. You know, I kind of always had that. 
but I can just say that I just developed this attitude of, you know, it's Faith's world. You know, it's all about her. You know, sometimes we have shame and the guilt and all of these other things that go along with this. But sometimes you just have to shake that in order to move life ahead for your child. It's just not those two things can't coexist. So I was able to just be strong enough because I did it by myself. I didn't have friends that had special needs kids. I didn't have friends that, that knew anything about IEPs or the regional center. And, um, you know, my daughter has cerebral palsy also. So, you know, she could walk a little bit. She's had a spine surgery that kind of makes her mobility more, even more limited. But she's just very determined. And I have to say that she is my beacon. She just keeps pushing. But she wants to be more independent. And I'm, my prayer is that, you know, at one point she will be as independent as possible. And should I leave this earth in an untimely manner, that I've done all the work that it takes to sustain her with minimal stress on whoever the caregiver will be. But my support system comes from the Family Resource Center at Westside Regional Center. My service coordinator is at Westside Regional Center. Jesus Franco was a, was our case manager and, and Jazz, another woman named Jazz who was a service coordinator. But they were just so helpful and they were so kind and they didn't make me feel like faith was strange or bizarre or anything like that. Could you talk a little bit about, um, uh, for somebody who might be considering visiting the, the Family Resource Center, uh, what you think uh, the benefits are, who, who it would particularly help uh, for somebody who, who is uh, contemplating that? Well, the Family Resource Centers are Family Resource and Empowerment Centers. So they not only help with our children and our clients and our family members that have developmental disabilities, but they also help with life situations. They are like a catch-all for everything. We went to so many classes. I went to so many workshops that by the time I had a need, I'd already gone to the workshop. But the family resource centers are really there as a family, and they they help you through things that are just off the beaten path. Everything is about a relationship. So every relationship that you can forge, I say do it. Every community opportunity that you have to go find something, pick up a paper. I was very curious, which is what made me so good at kind of helping other people because there may have been resources that I picked up that I didn't need, but at my door, literally, I had a bookshelf with all of my important papers, my emergency kit, everything. And when someone needed something, I had it because I already picked up two or three copies in English and Spanish, you know, wherever I went the week before. And yeah, looking at all of the different organizations that you've gotten involved with, it's it's obvious that you're one of those people who who jumps in when you see something and and works to, to make it better and to fix it. Are there any other organizations that you would really recommend for folks in a similar situation that you found particularly uh, helpful, impressive, et cetera? I think that any organization that gives a parent an opportunity that has a parent composition to it is always going to be good, whether it's your church and they have a special needs ministry or your temple or your mosque. Any organization that includes parents and that lets you have a voice or gives you the freedom to have a voice, because we always feel like when we're the parent in the room that our voices are squelched and that we're only needed for appearances or whatever. And I've never participated in any organizations that wouldn't let me kind of go free willy and say whatever needed to be said and, um, and offer up, you know, support or the parent perspective on all of these things. Tell me a little bit about A Leap of Faith, what the uh, your plans are there, what, what we can expect uh, going forward. Well, it is going to take, and pun intended, a leap of faith because you, I'm, we're, I'm starting from scratch. So my goal is to make sure, and I am preaching to the choir with this effort, is that parents are engaged 
and not just about IEPs, not about IPPs with, with uh, the regional center system and those things, but that we're engaged in social activities, that we're there as a support network for each other. And it's just basically what we say in all walks of life. It's caring for the caregiver because if it doesn't happen with us, then, then imagine what life will be like for the people that we serve or we're caring for, whether they're family or you're a mental health worker and you run support groups, whatever it is. So my goal is to get us out there and to make sure that our futures are intact. But the focus is, is honestly caring for each other. That's really amazing. So if there was a parent uh, listening to this who was much earlier in their journey and, and their child uh, was going through a diagnosis much more recently, and they said, Felicia, I, I, that sounds fantastic. You know, as you know, my, my schedule is incredibly busy right now. I just have so much to do. What would be some of the most easy, simple things that you would tell any parent, no matter how busy you are, try to make sure to do these things to just look out for yourself first? Yeah, I think in the morning, just wake up with a spirit of gratitude, looking forward to all the good things that are going to happen. Just get up and have a checklist because if something's in front of you, you'll get it done. That's one thing. Another thing is just be hopeful and accept that child for who they are right then and there. Make every stride you can, but the, this is kind of God's child. It's, we're just here to support and facilitate some things, that things are going to turn out just the way they're supposed to. The last thing is just to get and stay connected. Just get and stay connected. I don't care if it's a social group. I don't care if you meet at a park. Meet someone who's been down that road before you and let them just be a guide on the side, you know, and just try to find someone. And if and if they feel compelled to create something or to create a sense of community out of all of these collective experiences, good and bad, do so. I don't have a degree in anything. I've never graduated from college. None of that. But I have a heart and I have a spirit for people. And that's what compels me to do what I do and to reach out to people that I may not even know. Well, that's that's all beautiful. And we're so grateful for you to have joined us today and, and told that story and um, kind of shown shown that example uh, of, of what is possible. Yes. And just be, stay resilient. That's my last, my parting word. Stay resilient. When I see someone with a disability, that's my family. Oh, I don't wow. care color. I don't care. N- nothing else matters. They may be new to the country by two days. That's part of my family. And I don't mean extended family, but we, you know, you just see that they're akin to you. And that's it. So we support everyone. And we we just love our families. And, you know, sometimes on the weekend when people have free time, they're out doing things for other people. We learn how to be philanthropic in our own right without paying for things. We, we, we do that too. You know, when kids have events or someone needs something, we just show up and we get it done. And you don't, you may not be that kind of person at the beginning of your journey, but by the end of it, you so relate to other parents. You, there's this transference that happens and we just support each other. And that's, even if you don't have it, you can create that. Absolutely. Even if it's through social media, you can create that. But our, our parents and our families have to stay engaged and be engaged. One of those online social media communities that folks can be a part of uh, is one that we've started with the Upbeat, and it's really intended to be uh, a place for conversations, particularly about uh, the social and emotional well-being um, of parents, kids, everyone who is affected by childhood chronic illness. And so our actual, Coach Art's actual free arts and athletics programs are available in the Bay Area, LA, and San Diego, but our our online group, the the Upbeat platform and the Upbeat parent group are available for anybody anywhere in the country, and we invite them to join. Thank you all uh, so much for listening. Felicia, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure uh, to get a chance to talk to you today. It's all my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, and I hope we can do this again. 
You can find more content like this at theupbeat.coachart.org, where we have blog posts, podcasts, and YouTube clips, as well as a Facebook group that you can join and share your own helpful advice with other families who are dealing with social and emotional questions about kids going through chronic illness. So we hope to see you there. Thanks so much. Thank you.